You're listening to. Listen to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Ray Yu. And on this episode, we're bringing you an author chat with Tan Tuang Eng um, about his latest novel, The House of Doors. Um, as always, Books and Boba is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba, where members of our Patreon get access to our members-only Patreon server, as well as our monthly bonus podcast Boba Chats. But yeah, we had a really great chat with Tuan about his journey into becoming an author, as well as his latest novel, um, The House of Doors. Yeah, we learned a lot about uh, his process in researching, the time setting, and also uh, riding around real characters, because we have very big name characters like Sun Yat-sen and um, William Somerset Mom, who is like a very famous author. Let me just say, I'm going to, I'm just going to like reveal this about myself. I did not know that much about those two historical figures. So I learned a lot when I was reading this book. Yeah, I mean, I knew a lot about Dr. Sun Yat-sen, but that's just because he's, you know, the father of modern China. But I definitely did not know that Somerset Mon was a real person until I did some ancillary research um, while reading this book. Well, like I, like I've heard of him as as a writer, obviously, but I did not know that he traveled around the world and he actually witnessed not witnessed, but he like was actually in Malaya and wrote about this murder trial that actually happened. So it was a very interesting uh, setting that uh, Tan Tuan Eng. Uh, wrote for this book. So I hope you guys enjoy our conversation with him. Yeah, and now our chat with Tan Tuang Eng. And we are here with Tan Tuang Eng, the author of The Gift of Rain, The Garden of Evening Mists, and most recently his newest novel, The House of Doors. Uh, welcome to the show, Tuan. Thank you, Books and Boba. Thank you very much for <laughs> for inviting me to to your show. <laughs> yeah, your book just came out this week, um, which is, I guess, we'll be releasing this the week after. So last week, uh, congratulations on the release of your third book. You're now on your book tour, which is how we're able to catch you while you're in the States, um, even though we're on different coasts. Um, but we always love to start off our author chats by getting to know, you know, as the members of the Asian diaspora, we're always, you know, it's still really cool to see people that look like us writing books and being like published authors. So curious to hear, like, what was your journey into becoming a novelist? Well, it's extremely difficult. Uh, I used to be a lawyer. I used to be an intellectual property lawyer in Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> Malaysia, where, where I'm from Malaysia. Um, and, you know, like, like all Asian parents, which I'm sure you understand, uh, my parents did not want me to be a writer. They wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer, accountant or engineer. So it was it it was difficult to tell them that I really wanted to be a, a writer. So the I just decided I'd, I'd be a lawyer. I'd get I qualify as a lawyer and work for a few years, and after that, um, to see whether I liked it or not, which I did not like it, <laughs> and I wasn't a good lawyer because I was always telling my clients to settle and settle and settle for the main reason that I was just too lazy to prepare the work for court. You know. Hated, hated preparing work, uh, court work. 
to go into court and argue because then you have to stay until midnight in the office. For, so I didn't do that. Uh, so eventually I decided to take a, a year off from work and, uh, just to, to, just to uh, do nothing, just, just to see what I wanted to do. And again, being Asian, yeah, that you have to justify your gap year to your Asian parents. So I said, look, mm-hmm. I'm going to do a master's in law somewhere. I chose Cape Town because I, I have friends there who said, "Let's, well, why don't you come over and just try this place? I did. Uh, and I also, in the meantime, finished writing my first novel, The Gift of Rain. Sent it off to the UK. I received an offer by an agent to represent me quite quite uh, quickly. Um, and then that's when the problem started because they submitted to the publishers in, in England and uh, every publisher that turned it down. They just, they just turned it down. We asked for reasons why. So they compiled a thick sheaf of documents. Um, the main reason seemed to be that the marketing department didn't want it because it was difficult to market. Uh, AI was unknown. Um, the subject matter was set in Malaya, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. And the marketing department said, sorry, you know, we, we don't know how to categorize this, so we're passing it on. Uh, despite the enthusiastic uh, reports from their editors. The editors said we want this, but the marketing department said we don't want that. And uh, it was quite difficult getting published. It took about another one or two years before a newly formed independent publisher in Newcastle uh, decided to sign me up to to, uh, to to publish me. And even then, after he published me, the road was still full of uh, obstacles because the, none of the bookshops wanted to stock the book. One of the bookshops in, in the UK. So he, he battled to uh, really sell the book. Uh, everything changed when The Gift of Rain was longlisted for the Booker Prize in 2007. And suddenly there was a demand and interest in the novel. And uh, I have to say that really kick-started, opened doors, I would say, for, for me. Yeah, you have a great uh, record with the Man Booker Prize. Uh, this is your third nomination. And, you know, it's like, a 100% streak now. Like, yes, how does that yeah. feel? Uh, I, I just feel that I better stop writing so that all, for the rest of my life, I can, I can tell people, you know, all my books were nominated for the Booker Prize. <laughs> and quit while you're it's, ahead. Yes. Um, I really wasn't expecting this book to be uh, nominated at all um, because in many ways, it's, uh, it, on the surface, the House of Doors looks very like an old-fashioned novel. In many ways, and that was intentional. I wanted to create this facade of the sort of novel that you think you pick up and they say, "Oh, this is this could have been written you know, eighty, a hundred years ago." But underneath that facade, it, it, it's quite modern in in the way I've constructed it, and the themes and the uh, issues that, that are being uh, dealt with in that book. So I, I was very. I, I suppose I was. Ex- well, I was extremely gratified when I, I was. Longlisted for the Booker Prize. That was, that was a huge, a uh, uh, huge honor, I have to say. And also bef- because that, that my last book, The Garden of Evening Mist, had come out um, in 2012. So it's almost you know, ten years since um, the Booker Prize remembered me. So I mean, you left an impression. I I mean, ten years is a long time to ten write years a book. Is a long time, but, yes, yes. But. Some of the best novels that we've read for this book club has been a labor of love for for a decade. And um, just curious, like how, like, what took you so long to write House of Doors? Like, was what was like the most challenging parts of it? 
uh, getting over my my inherent laziness, I suppose. <laughs> um, the Garden of Evening Mist uh, achieved some success, so I wanted to ride on the success and extend the interest in that novel. So every time there was an invitation to speak at any event or any festival, I would say, yes, I'll, I'll, I would do it. So that disrupted my writing routine very much. I'm not the sort who can come back and resume immediately. I had to get into uh, into the zone. So that disrupted my writing routine. I had a health issue with my knee as well, my right knee. I found out that uh, my right knee, uh, the, the, the cartilage had become so thin. It was paper thin, mm-hmm. the surgeon told me. So I had to do some... Uh, I had to do some um, um, surgery to try and fix it, but which wasn't successful. So you know, it it, it just took so much uh, uh, out of me. And at that point, I was I had in mind a, a huge project, a multi-volume sort of a story, and I I found it too daunting to to even think about it. So while I was doing physiotherapy every day, uh, I thought, oh, let's let's write this little story I had in mind, which. I kept in in my drawer um, because I, I felt that it 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 wouldn't take much research. Uh, it would be quite easy to write. So um, imagine my ever growing dismay when I realized that uh, it wasn't easy to write, and I had to <laughs> I, I didn't. There were so many things I did not know, and I had to do so much research on it. Uh, it was it was terrible. Yeah, it was uh, a hole <laughs> that I kept digging, and I was going deeper and deeper, and I couldn't climb out. Yeah, it was a um, quite an uh, horrible. Experience, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely talk more about the the stories you wrote because it definitely has like a lot of layers to it. I kind of want to go back to though. Um, I'm actually curious what drew you to writing stories in the first place. Like like many writers, we started out as readers. We were obsessive readers. I started reading very young. Um, my parents were very rare in that they never censored what I wanted to read. They just said, you can read whatever you want. Uh, if you have something you, if you read something you don't understand, uh, just come and talk to us. Uh, we'll explain, we'll try our best to explain. So uh, from a very young age, I could read ever I wanted. And I did. And I found this whole writing industry and the idea of writers and publishers and editors fascinating. Uh, every time, even when I was a child, every time I opened a book, I would I would really study, you know, the copyright page and trying to decipher what all those things meant, you know, what, what is all these things. So uh, that that's, it started from a very young age. Uh, I read a, very, read a lot of very uh, uninspiring books. Uh, and then when, when I did that, I, I just told myself, look, really, I, I can do much better than this. <laughs> um, that, that's the ego of youth, you see. And, and also the laziness of youth. I, of course, I didn't do anything about it. I just talked. It was all talk. Um, it was only much later when I was doing my gap year that I said, okay, I've got time now. Uh, you know, all this talk, all these years about being a writer, you better sit down and start doing it, uh, which I did. Uh, by that time, I had developed a sense of discipline as well, um, mainly through, because I, I had been doing um, the Japanese martial art of Aikido for about 10 years by then. And that really helped me with my discipline and, and mental discipline as well. So I, I could sit down. Uh, for eight hours a day and, and write. So. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned a lot how 
you have this inherent laziness where your genre of choice seems to be historical fiction, which is like the genre that requires the most amount of research to write. Like, how did, how did that happen? How did you end up being a well, historical fiction writer? Well, the thing is, I don't see research as work. You see, it's so enjoyable and so fascinating, especially when you're researching a subject you, you, you find very interesting and compelling. Um, and it's basically just reading and taking notes, isn't it? It's really not much, it's not working. But whereas with writing or even being a lawyer, it's actually work. And then it's hard work as well, despite what, despite what many people think. They, a lot of people think writing is, is very glamorous and, and exciting and fun because you go to parties all the time and you have book launches and you get interviewed. But actually, that, that's only about 10% of the writing life. The 90% of it is sitting at your desk every day and forcing yourself to, to produce something. And I find that uh, when it's going well, it's highly enjoyable. But when it's not going well, then I find it so frustrating. And, that's, uh, and it doesn't pay well as well. You know, the whole job, that's, that's the bottom line as well, isn't it? You, you spend all this time and effort working and uh, for for very little financial rewards. It, it's, it's, uh, you really have to do it only if you love writing. Yeah, I, I can totally understand how research can be uh, used as like a procrastination tool almost. It's like, exactly. oh, like I'm, yes. like I'm yes. writing, but not writing because I am doing research. And of course, like you just go down uh, the rabbit hole. But when, when do you know uh, when to stop researching and just buckle down and write? Well, I, I don't research everything before I start writing. So I, it, well, while I'm writing, if I come across uh, a plot point or I think of a new plot point which I, I want to explore and I realize I don't know much about that, that subject matter where the plot point is heading towards, then I'll stop and start finding materials and reading about it. And once you feel that, okay, that's enough for what I want to develop here, uh, you, you go back to the writing. Uh, the problem is sometimes you find very interesting stuff and then you 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 start branching out you start thinking oh what about this and then you really have to stop yourself and think okay what you have to focus basically uh on on what on the story that you 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 want to tell and not go off in tandem uh, and get lost and confu- confusing <laughs> yeah, yourself it's, so, and it's goes, all yeah. about pruning yeah i mean yes, it's fiction yeah. writing you're not <laughs> yes. writing a non-fiction or yes or yeah. biography, so there's definitely more structure to it. Yes, yeah. I mean, I gotta say, reading your book did send me down some Wikipedia rabbit holes, <laughs> looking up these like um, real life characters that you included. So um, I learned a lot reading your book. Oh, that's good. Uh, yes, I, I intentionally left a lot of stuff. Uh, I didn't explain a lot of stuff because I want I want the readers to do some work. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think when the reader does a little bit of the heavy lifting themselves they create a stronger connection with the book. Whereas if I just told you everything, you, you, it's basically a, a completely uh, passive experience you're, you're having. But when you have to dig around, you have to supplement some of the gaps in, 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 the, in the novel, I think you, you, feel, uh, you, you, you feel that the book is more part of you and you have a sense of ownership of, of, of the book rather than just being fed all the information. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree. Um, before we move into uh, discussing further about House of Doors, your recent novel, I did want to ask you, since you are someone who grew up in Malaysia and whose books have been published through, uh, through the UK, how has your experience been um, 
with the publishing industry and them publishing Asian stories? Because obviously it's very different from in American publishing. I, I feel like the... Um, I mean, like, don't quote me on this, but I feel like the diversity here is um, like there is more of a catalog, whereas with uh, UK publishing, um, there's still an ongoing struggle to get diaspora stories or story Asian stories written by Asian authors. Like, has that been an experience that you've had? Like, what has your experience been with the UK publishing industry? It's been quite good, I have to say. Uh, everyone's been very professional, uh, but I, you know, I, I see, I can see that in terms of the sort of books being published. Yes, um, America has has, has a wider range of voices, uh, more diverse voices. So, uh, but things have changed from the first from the first time I published my my. Um, my first novel um, to to now, I think have really changed and and for the better as well. You see, you see a more uh, uh, diverse uh, uh, series of writers, uh, editors as well. Uh, for example, my my British publishing house, Canongate, they they are really taking steps to broaden um, the sort of writers they they sign on. The sort of writers that they want to help and promote, so it I, it, it has improved tremendously. I have to say, uh, maybe not as as widely as the United States, but it's it's getting there. So you know, we just have to keep pushing and pushing, uh, and and you know, that's that's life. So <laughs> yeah, I think we have come come a long way from historical fiction that is set in Asia, written by white authors who exoticize our culture <laughs> or glorify colonization. Um, so I, I do really enjoy seeing uh, not just American authors, but like authors in Asia and also in other diasporas write about uh, just like colonial history and how it affected our culture. And uh, it's something that, you know, can go off in so many branches. and. We can see that in your work. I mean, you have three books that are historical fiction that uh, talks about Malaya. So, um, yeah, I'm like really grateful that you're you were able to uh, dig deeper into that <laughs> level of history. Well, so I'm I'm grateful as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm also grateful that 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 are that there are readers who who want to read my novels, uh, regardless of where they come from or their age. I mean, I, I might. I was quite surprised, you know, whenever I do these book tours or appear at literary festivals, I'm quite surprised, but very grateful for the the wide spectrum of the sort of readers I, I get, you know, uh, from late teens to people in the 80s, men and, men or women, uh, people of all races. So the point is, I think, to write very strong stories with very compelling characters. Um, that, that's the point to, to get people interested in in your stories and your history uh, and also it, it, it's very important not to preach you know, you, have, you might had some some lessons you want to preach but you, you really that that's incredibly off-putting for any reader i don't want to read a book when when i know that the author is preaching to me or is pushing an agenda on me i i, I don't want that i want to experience human emotions human fears human hopes human love uh, and that that's what makes a book successful i think in, in the long run not not just uh, uh what is currently uh, uh fashionable but what what should 
what uh, what is timeless. Yeah, yeah, and what's timeless is uh, characters who go through human struggles, yes. and the human yes. struggle has not really evolved, yes. in no, my opinion. No, no, no. <laughs> we still have wars. We still have murder. We still have. We still have so many things. We still have adultery. We still have cheating. We still have, uh, you know, so many bad things. And that's human nature. And I don't think human nature will ever change. That's a sad thing. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into our discussion of your latest novel, um, The House of Doors. Um, can you give us a, a quick overview of what your new, newest novel is about? Well, The House of Doors is set uh, in two time frames, 1910 and 1921. In 1921, the uh, British writer W. Somerset Maugham and his secretary uh, are visiting the island of Penang, which is in the British colony of Malaya. He stays with uh, his old friend uh, Robert Hamlin, and his wife by their home, uh, in, in their home by the seaside. Now, this is where he hears about a, a real-life murder trial of an English woman in Kuala Lumpur, which will form um, the basis of one of his most well-known short stories, The Letter. Now, this is my take on how he came to hear <laughs> the story and wrote that, that short story, The Letter. It also has the real-life character of um, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who is who was a Chinese revolutionary. Uh, at that time, he was traveling the world, raising funds to, to fund his uh, revolutionary attempts to bring down the Chinese monarchy and replace it with a, a republican government. Um, so this, these, there are four real-life characters in the House of Doors, and they all converge on the island of Penang. Yeah. What inspired you to um, base your story around these real-life characters? Well, I wanted to... I first read more of the short stories, the letter when I was in my teens, and I found it a very uh, readable and compelling story. I, I was even more uh, excited when I discovered that he had based it on this real life trial, which had taken place in Kuala Lumpur a hundred years ago. I was living, I was growing up in Kuala Lumpur, and to know that you know Somerset Maugham had been there and he heard about this trial and he wrote this short story, I found it. Uh, I suppose the the, the 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 writer in me even then saw the potential for that. So the House of Doors is, is in a way a reverse engineering of the letter. It's how Somerset Moore could have come to hear about the story and then subsequently went on to write the letter. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that, that's one of the seeds of, of the House of Doors. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, your story is, like you mentioned, an imagined origin story for these events that, themselves are mythologized from actual events where the letter is a, a, his own take, um, Somerset Maugham's own take on the Ethel um, Proudlock case. And also, you know, Dr. Sun Yat-sen has become himself a mythologized yeah. figure as well, yes. right? Yeah, so it's interesting to uh, look at them at the, at, at, at the, the beginning of their careers as, <laughs> as it is, you know, to, to see what, what made them become this, these legends that they eventually became. To see that they that they're also human and, and full of, of of pettiness and weaknesses and jealousy, you know, all the things that make us human. <laughs> so it's, it's it's it was fun writing about these things to to take them down from the pedestal and uh, to show that they're human as well. Yeah, um, it was also really interesting reading your novel because. It takes place in, you know, Malaysia, um, British colony of Malaya at the time. And it's told through the lens of British characters, you know, as your POV characters, even though um, one of your main characters, Leslie, was born and raised in Penang. Yeah. Um, 
they still view the world through like a colonial lens. Like what, um, can you tell us why you decided to focus your story on these white POV characters? Well, first of all, uh, because the letter involved an English woman who was, who was on trial for killing her lover. So I, to work backwards from that, I had to use also uh, a white woman to see it from Ethel's point of view. It's, you know, I, whenever you write a novel, you, you can't just have boxes and tick and say, okay, I want to do this, this, this. You can't. You have to see what works best. Not only what works best, what works for your novel. And what works is that Somerset Maugham, I wanted Somerset Maugham to come to Penang and I wanted him to stay with the family there to hear the story. Now, in the social milieu of, of that time, he, he couldn't have stayed with a Chinese family or Malay <laughs> family or Indian family. No, there's no way. So it had to be uh, an English couple. Uh, it, it's all these choices that you read are many times to de-glamorize writing. It's many times practical considerations. You have to be practical when you're writing your, your, your novel and to make, to make the plot authentic and also believable because otherwise you'll, you'll be trying to uh, impose today's values onto a story which you're setting 100 years ago. And that's going to be an uncomfortable fit. And readers are not going to buy that. They're not going to believe that. So you really have to look at what the novel, your novel, your particular novel requires and then try to do the best for it instead of just trying to say, okay, I want to tick all these boxes. It's, it's, you can't do that. It's, it's impossible. Yeah, it's kind of like archaeology. You're uh, trying, <laughs> you're deducing and yes, licking yeah. pieces together. <clears throat> yes. uh, I thought Leslie was a very interesting character, not just because, uh, you know, she is a white woman who was born and raised in Penang, but also because, you know, she knows Sun Yat-san and... That's just such a weird connection to have. And uh, and she also knows uh, Somerset Mom. And that's like, sh- she's just a normal woman who is surrounded yes. by incredible her, people uh, yes. making incredible plans. Like, how was it uh, coming up with her character and her voice? Quite easy, because first of all, uh, She's actually quite similar to Ethel Proudlock. I wanted that similarity as well. I wanted to blur these two women as well because it's, in many cases, what happens to Ethel Proudlock is a warning to Leslie as well not to overstep the lines which society has drawn around her. So she's, that's why she's so controlled. She's so careful. She, she watches what she says and what she does because she's seen what, hap- what, what had happened to her best friend uh, Ethel when Ethel stepped across those lines. So she's terrified. She's, she's obsessed with uh, you know, status and, 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 and having a rich husband because she, she comes from a middle-class family and she wants all that. So she wants to protect all that. That's why she's so careful. Uh, but you know, she's more than that. She's more than this shallow person. She's also interested in leaving a trace of herself uh, on history. And that's why she, she, found, uh, she finds... Sun Yat-sen so compelling and fascinating because here is this man traveling the world. He's doing great things. He's, uh, and he's going to achieve uh, great historical things. And she feels that as a woman, what, what, what avenues does she have? Uh, as, as she tells Somerset Mom in one of the scenes in, in the book, uh, you know, uh, the only way for a woman to be remembered by history is if she's either a queen or a whore. What about a, a normal housewife like me? Who is going to remember me? 
Um, and that's, again, uh, another reason why she connects with Somerset more uh, later on, because she, here she sends that there's somebody here who could write her into immortality, which is what she's, she's interested in. She wants to be remembered. I think all of us want to be remembered in, in, some, in, you know, in, in one way or another. So here she is um, trying to leave some trace of herself on this world after she's dead and gone. Yeah. I mean, reading your story, it reminded me of a lot of like, you know, classic American plays about like messy white people and their affairs and their infidelities, but set in Malaya, set in like an Asian country. Can you tell us about your inspirations of like writing the story and setting it in the setting? Like what, how was that experience like for you? Well, it's, uh, I didn't have much difficulty with it. I enjoyed writing the, I enjoyed writing this, this, almost a drawing room drama because really nothing, you know, compared to my previous two novels where so much cataclysmic events took place, to suddenly write this quite domestic drama uh, with many things taking place in just the house itself, you know, Kasawari house. Uh, well, initially I found it quite hard <laughs> because I'm thinking, okay, okay, nothing's happening here. What do I do? What do I do? You know, there's no war coming. They're not in the middle of a war. I can't, I can't, ramp up the stakes or the tension. So I had to find different ways of doing that. I have to go into the the emotions. I had to ramp up the stakes emotionally. Uh, so that's it was much more hard to do that than to have external threats coming in. So it, in many ways, it was a learning process for me as well as a writer uh, uh, to, to develop this uh, skill and, and this maturity to really sit down. Uh, there, were, there were many days when I was writing the novel where I did nothing more than just sit down and just put myself in the scene and, okay, try to feel uh, what each character was experiencing, just to go deep and deep and deep. Uh, quite exhausting, I have to say, when, when you come out from it. It's just like, oh. I think it's uh, pretty interesting how this book, it is about a different uh, branch of diaspora. You know, it's not just... Uh, you know, Asian Americans or Asians living in the UK. It's like, you know, British people who are living in um Well, they've in got Asia. their, it's a British diaspora. It's a, yeah, it's a British it's diaspora. A reverse. <laughs> yeah, and it makes you what, like, it makes you question, like, what is the difference between expat and immigrant? Like, what is the difference well, between those two labels? Yeah, well. uh, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I would say it depends on how much you're earning. You see, that's, that's the thing. <laughs> I, think, I think for, they, they view expats as more uh, white-collar workers, executives or people like that. Whereas, uh, you know, if they say it's, it's migrant labor, then it, it's really blue-collar and it, it's working with hands, which is quite uh, condescending, I think. Because to me, anyone who, anyone who works, who goes to another country to work is, is an expat, regardless of the sort of work he, he or she does. You're an expat. So try not to you know, differentiate uh, all, all of that. Uh, but you're, you're, it's interesting because I've often thought of that and you're the first person who's ever uh, <laughs> spoken to me about that. I often ask my friends, you know, what, what is, what's this wise ex, expat um, <laughs> and, and migrant labor? What's the difference? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting for me to like compare with my own experience as like an Asian American, Asian diaspora, and just like how you illustrate a difference between like I guess the difference between like the immigrant expect mentalities and how 
you know, culture is claimed by the privileged, right? Like, I think one of the interesting things I picked up on is as you're reading, you know, Leslie's experiences, like she is someone who, you know, was born and raised in like in Malaya and by all accounts, like is part of the culture. But at the same time, there is something a little off, right? Especially for those of us who grew up marginalized, um, we kind of can pick up on that. Whereas she grew up as like a, a member of like the imperial power, right? So definitely there is like, a commentary on privilege and the commentary on like blind spots for even though she is like feels she's yeah, part she, of the culture. She she's part of the culture and uh well she, she you know but the the because she she's from a, a lower class uh a background the 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 upper class Brits they also look down on her so you know she she doesn't really belong uh, with a European crowd as well and that that's why she she's always so. I think she's quite angry. She's a very angry woman. I I, I did realize what an angry character. I mean, I, most I women created. are angry. <laughs> yes, yeah. and I did not realize. Uh, it was only after I finished my first draft and I read through it that I realized. But this is a very feminist novel, which I didn't set out to write. Uh, but I just I realized that if you're writing about a woman character hundred years ago, you are your story is going to bump up against all the restrictions that a woman faced. In, in those days. And if your character is an intelligent and sensitive and aware character, she is going to chafe against these restrictions placed. She's got, she can see I mean, any intelligent woman, regardless of which century you're living, can sense injustice. You know, it, it, doesn't, you, it doesn't matter which, which age or century you're living in. Why can some, somebody do this just because he's a man and me as a woman, I can't do it. Isn't it? That's, yeah. Uh, so it's it's inevitable, I think, uh, and I'm very glad that uh, I realized that. Uh, it was in, in the, while I was writing the, the the novel, I wanted Leslie to do a lot of things on her own to walk around the island, and then I realized she can't, you know, because for a woman of a class and and a time, she can't do that on her own. There's a scene in in the book as well, where she wants to go to Kuala Lumpur to, and, uh, on her own and uh, stay in a hotel. And the husband said, you can't, you're a married woman. What, what, would, it, what would people think if you check into a hotel on your own? You can't do it. So, um, things like that we take for granted today, but it, it was quite, it was the norm in, in, um, in, in uh, uh, well, 100 years ago. Yeah, and it makes sense that uh, Leslie would participate uh, in Sonia Sen's uh, uh, book club activities because you know it's it's a feel it's a feeling of liberation in a way because she is being a part of something that is it's big bigger that, than that herself, is bigger yeah. bigger than herself yes. and as someone who didn't really know much about Sun Yat-sen and um like I I was just like very intrigued by how he was trying to collect uh funds from like the Chinese overseas, diaspora the overse- family. The, the overseas Chinese. The overseas <laughs> Chinese. And yes, yes. I, I think a lot of people don't understand how big, like how actually big the Chinese diaspora is and how many generations, you know? Yes. And yeah. you do introduce the straight Chinese uh, yes. community in your book. Can you uh, tell us more about that community and your personal ties to it? Well, it's a subset of, of the, uh, uh, the, the Chinese community because these are... Uh, Chinese who had either now within the straight Chinese community, there are also various subsets as well. It depends on whether this group of Chinese had absorbed British influences and uh, you know uh, 
sent their kids to English schools and adopted the British way of life, or whether they've uh, intermarried with uh, Malays or, or the Siamese or the Indonesians. Uh, so there, there are various fascinating and colorful subsets within the Straits Chinese. Uh, for me, my, my, my um, grandparents and great-grandparents, they, they were very much Anglophiles. So I... I'm from that subset, uh, mainly in Penang. So it, again, it depends on which part of Malaysia that you were born in. That, that decides your, your fate, more or less. <laughs> the languages you speak when you grow up, the, the sort of culture you were uh, familiar with. So, but it's a rich, a very rich, uh, uh, thriving culture, cultures yeah, <laughs> within this, this so-called uh, straight Chinese uh, um, um, description. Yeah, I love how uh, the Chinese diasporas communities in Malaya and like uh, the Chinese uh, characters, they all view each other differently. They're like, oh, like they don't understand what real China is about. Like they've betrayed us because uh, they're they're up with the English. And (laughs) it's just it's just a very funny and colorful. um, It's. Realistic, Commentary. I think. Yeah, it's realistic because even today, you know, you've got uh, mainly Cantonese speakers who are feeling antagonistic towards the mainly Mandarin speakers, or you're speaking some other Chinese language. And I, I don't even want to call them dialects because each there's so many different Chinese languages. They sound so different from one another. It's only the the common writing system that that, that they share similarities with it. So uh, there's so many different Chinese languages. And so again, there's different ways, different cultures, different foods, different expressions and values it, within this Chinese <laughs> description. It, it's, but that's what makes um, life so great. There's so many, there's so much diversity. And we, yeah. Such I richness mean, there. Chinese people have been settling in Southeast and <laughs> like the islands of Asia for, for centuries before the white people even got here. So, no, there's layers and layers and, you know, Immigration is all about like migration patterns, and you know my family's from Taiwan, so we have our yeah. own issue with different yes. migration patterns and is waves yeah. and things, is right? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah. It's uh, but it's fascinating. You know? imagine how dull if all of us spoke the same Chinese language, if all of us <laughs> ate the same food and dressed the same way. Now it, it is. It's I I love this this diversity even when they're antagonistic it's it's so much fun I think. yeah i always joke with my white friends like oh asians we all hate each other we all have <laughs> we all, like, we all need a other. common yeah, enemy but i noticed that all of your characters are pretty like they don't have happy marriages they're quite yeah. lonely yes. and it, uh, it, it's a, it's a very anti-marriage book, isn't it? Yes, I also, I, it I, also is. did, I, I also did not realize that when I was writing it until, um, it's it's basically a, a, also a commentary on when when you put on masks, you know, all the characters wear masks. You you can't really be happy uh, because there's always the awareness that you're playing a role. And the only person, can you guess, the only person who is truly free, liberated, and happy, who who which is that character in my book is Gerald Haxton. <laughs> he doesn't care what people think of him. He doesn't care what what uh, the the the, uh, the judgment and values of, of society. He does what he wants. He says what he wants, and he's free. He doesn't wear a mask. He's the only one who's free. Yeah, I mean, definitely saw like shades of Austin books where like marriage is more of a 
like it's pragmatic, right? It's as, as a pragmatic <laughs> transaction. You know, it, it's always been. I think marriage is even though we deny it and we say, "Oh, it's true love," but there's always. I'm I'm a cynic. Uh, I'm a cynic when when it comes to that. So it's, <laughs> and you also compare it to you know like Sun Yat-sen, who notoriously had more than one wife. Sometimes yes, yeah. at the same time, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he had he had. Uh, I don't know how many wives he had because uh, the official ones and the non-official <laughs> ones. Uh, and then you know to, to tell Leslie that he he believes in equal rights, and then Leslie asks him, you know, but if you can have many wives, why can't I have many husbands? And he says, no, that's against the order of nature. So then that's again, it shows the hypocrisy of of, of uh, humankind. It, it's basically hypocrisy. Uh, when we look at Somerset Maugham's works, we always think that, oh, he only wrote about murder and affairs and scandals, but actually he was writing about hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of society in his stories. Uh, he was yeah, trying and, to, to and show And it that. makes sense because he was, like, you know, he was gay and he, he gay. had to he fight was. against so much yeah. in society. Yeah. 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 Yes, but he also, like many of us, uh, he was also a hypocrite. Uh, we can't. You know, it, it's hard to. It's hard to be pure and noble because at, at, uh, we all we're not we're not perfect. So, <laughs> so Somerset is a real life person. How was it cultivating his personality in your book, and you know, not making him stiff? I guess <laughs> making him like a real breathing person in your uh, book. <clears throat> Uh, initially, it was quite difficult um, because I had the idea that I would write in his voice. I found I couldn't do it. Oh, I that's right. It was in third person yeah. for, yes. for his chapters. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And Leslie's uh, chapters are in the first person. So you get to hear Leslie's voice directly. With Somerset Norm, I tried to do it in the first person. I couldn't do it. Uh, I'm not talented enough. So it felt false to me. So I decided to make him, uh, his chapters in the third person. Uh, and I discovered it worked much better because he's such a well-traveled uh, uh, person. So his his point of view, and he's very sophisticated, he's seen the world. So to, to have this third-person uh, voice open up a wider vista for the reader. Whereas with Leslie, she's, she's very, her life is very narrow and confined. So her voice is just a first-person. It shows how, how constricted her, her viewpoints are. It, it worked as a very nice contrast between these two characters, uh, to, to, to Subconsciously to show the reader as well the, the differences between these two characters, and also to this to help the reader differentiate the voices so that they they don't get confused by the chapters. And also, he's he's the writer; he's writing down her stories, so there's always yes. going to be a degree of separation. So, yes. yeah, I think that that really makes sense that you made it a third person uh, voice yes. for Somerset. Yes. Yeah. Well, your book um, is out now, booksellers everywhere. Um, how is how has the reception been? How has your book tour been? Very good. Uh, we've had very good reviews already. Uh, yes, since yesterday, the book was launched yesterday in Brooklyn at the Center for Fiction, and we've really had a lot of good reviews coming in. So, uh, I, I believe my publisher Bloomsbury told me that the uh, it's gone into the third printing already. So that's oh, wow. that's very gratifying. Yes. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know you're in the middle of promoting this book, but um, do you have any other books in here right now or are you just like focusing on this? No, 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 no I'm focusing on... Uh, I, uh, I haven't been able to write anything for the last... Uh, since since August last year because I was one of the judges for the International Booker Prize, mm-hmm. which is for works translated from foreign languages into English. 
Um, we, we from between September, August last year until May this year, we had to read 135 novels. Oh wow! So, oh yeah, yeah. So it was, it was basically a book a day. Uh, wow! And then after my duties as a judge uh, were finished, it was promoting this book in the UK, which came out in May, and now um, in the US. So, so I've been on the go for since last year. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It feels like we read a lot of books for this podcast, but a book a day seems like a lot of books. Yeah. What, what thank, thankfully, they were all quite, uh, some of the novels were very European because they were 60 pages long, so oh. very European. But some of the books were also very European because they were 900 pages long. So it's... <laughs> oh, there's no middle lane. It's just nah. 60 pages or 900 oh, pages. Yeah. So wow. with, with no paragraph breaks. Some oh. of them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just one chunk from page one to the last page. Just oh, one. Paragraph. Your favorite type of book, Rira. Wow. I know. My favorite. <laughs> I mean, it's it's also really nice to see more um more books being translated into English yes. and also vice yeah. versa. Like we're yeah. getting more Asian American authors, for example, having their books translated into yes. uh, their languages, native yeah. languages. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's been quite interesting to see uh each other's reviews, you know, like what the motherland thinks of what yeah. uh, that but, diaspora country yeah. thinks of, but so much of it must they must be well translated because you know that's so important. If you read a badly translated novel, then it's going to put you off reading that author again for a long time. So it, it's so it can't be a rush job. It can't be a, a low budget job. It for translators and for publishers who are translating, I think they must they must focus on quality. Uh, not just of the original writing, but also of the translation, because otherwise it uh, it does a disservice to everyone involved. Uh, that's uh, it's uh, I think it's it's very important for that. Yes, yeah. and we will side eye all of the authors who italicize their yes. uh, <laughs> their native word. languages yes, yes, and their translated yeah. works. Yes, yes yeah. I, I think, think we've I moved wanna, past yeah. that phase. I think so. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. They just have to suck it up and just accept it. If you don't understand the word, go and Google it. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Well. Congratulations on the launch of your book. Congratulations on getting longlisted for the Booker Prize uh, again. Um, and yeah, thank you for coming on the show with Thanks. us. And Thank you, Marvin and Rira. It was really uh, fun chatting with the both of you. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, it was lovely having you. And that was Tan Tuong Eng, the author of The Gift of Rain, The Garden of Evening Mists, and most recently, um, The House of Doors, which is available now at booksellers everywhere, including the Books and Boba online bookstore. Um, as always, if you purchase a book off our website at booksandboba.com, um, you support not only um, the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstores. Um, and if you'd like to support uh, Books and Boba more directly, um, please consider joining our Patreon. Um, like we mentioned, you not only get access to our members-only Discord server, where you can interact with us in real time, but also our monthly bonus episodes, which if you tune in this month, you'll learn all about my um, recent European honeymoon. I'm excited to share some stories from that trip uh, with you all. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for that. Um, but before we go, um, Rira, can you remind us what our Books and Boba book club pick for October 2023 is? Sure. We are reading Natural Beauty by Ling Ling Huang, and it is a novel that follows a young Chinese-American pianist who takes a job at a holistic wellness company, Think Goop, uh, where she learns the extent to which her new employers will go to make their privileged clients happy. 
So it is a creepy read. I heard that there is some trigger warnings about body horror, uh, gore, and there is, I think there's like a scene of sexual assault. So if any of those triggers you're sensitive to, just approach with caution. But um, I'm pretty excited to read this book. I have not picked it up yet. I, I have half of a month left, so I better get on it. But um, yeah, if you guys have any thoughts, please share on our Goodreads forums or on our Discord. If you guys are a Patreon member, we'd love to hear what you guys thought and also to incorporate it into our conversation. Yeah, I have not started this book as well because... Um as with a lot of horror things, I've been putting it off because I am a wimp. So um, wasn't yeah. this wasn't this a Patreon pick, by the way? Yeah, this was suggested to yeah, us. Yeah, because like our you and uh, you and I are very adverse to like horror, creepy, <laughs> gore stuff. And yeah, this so- this sounded not so bad, but we we haven't like jumped in yet, so I don't know. <laughs> but this is definitely a book that Marvin and I would, you know kind of be adverse to picking at first so we're really glad that we got suggestions from our uh honey boba members yeah so so happy to be forced yeah to this book. thanks yes woo spooky month thanks so much yeah uh, but with that that'll do it for this episode books and boba thank you so much for listening thank you to tantuan ang for joining us and we'll see you all next time bye everybody bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Charlene Kay. I'm a musician, songwriter, and guitarist. Growing up, I loved music. Whether it was pop, acoustic, emo, I ate it all up. But as a Chinese-American kid living in Scottsdale, Arizona, I also felt isolated, never really seeing artists who looked like me or shared my experiences. So after years of performing on stages all over the world, I wanted to create a space to highlight the amazing Asian musicians who I knew were out there, just not always getting played on the radio. That's why I started Golden Hour, a podcast where Asian singers, songwriters, instrumentalists, and music producers share their personal stories. And it's a space for you to discover your new favorite artist. Listen to Golden Hour with me, Charlene Kay, wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. 